All right, according to that clock, it is time to start. Grateful to be here. I wanted to say hello to Rita at home. It's great to... Yes. In fact, let's everyone go ahead on three. Let's say hi to Rita. One, two, three. Hello, Rita. So Rita knows that she's loved and welcome from home. And thank you for all those who are watching from home. Uh, we're working through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, turn open there. And I left you hanging on the edge the last time. And so if you don't recall that, well, I tried my best. But... <laughs> Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll try and pick up where we left off last time and develop uh, a theme that I think that you find frequently in Scripture. Uh, so I think it's an important thing for us to think about here today. Let's begin, to, though, with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful this evening that you have been so gracious and kind to us that you thought of us in our sinful condition. And not only did you think of us, but you resolved the problems that we had by sending your son, the Lord Jesus, to take our sin. But not only was our sin taken by Jesus, but also his righteousness was granted to us, that we can stand in your presence fully justified, fully declared guiltless, and in fact, beyond that, righteous. Not because of the works which we've done, but because of the works that your son has done. And so we stand innocent and guiltless uh, because of the work of your son. And so we're thankful. And so we owe you a debt of gratitude, a debt that can only be repaid with a lifetime of service. Father, we're such easily distracted creatures. Going from one thing to the next, help us then, as Peter has encouraged us, to set our hope fully on the grace that's coming to us at the revelation of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And help us to obey the commands that we read of here today in the passage that you've given to us to study. Open our hearts to understand, to believe, to trust, and in, more, and in, in all of this, to having looked in the mirror of your word to address those issues that we see lingering in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, there are new notes for today uh, concerning chapter 2, 1 to 8. And Lord willing, we'll get to those rather quickly here. But we do need to finish some things that we were talking about last time. We had left off with uh, the command uh, number 4, which was live in fear. And uh, we were talking about how some are a bit concerned about this passage because, of course, we understand that with election and our relationship to Christ, there's a sense in which we shouldn't fear. He's redeemed us. We've been forgiven. And yet, Peter begins this phrase, and, and I've suggested to you that it should be an if rather than a sense. In the Greek, it's if. If you call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Why then does Peter reference and really begin with a question, if indeed you call on him as father? And then why does he say that God judges impartially? So the fourth command we're walking through here is this. Peter says, live in fear during the time of your sojourning, during the time from your uh, confession of Christ until his full redemption of you. 
live in fear. So we have to define what that fear is. And I mentioned before that there are really two major interpretations. One of those is, is live in quaking fear. The other is live in reverential fear of the Lord. Understanding that, uh, understanding who the Lord is. And I think that latter one fits much better in this context. Though, Peter does begin with this statement of if. So why does he do that? And I think the point is this. He's saying that there are some who claim to know the Lord, but they don't know the Lord. And a question that we have to ask at some point in our lives is, okay, do I personally know the Lord? Um, I think I mentioned it last time, but Jesus has that powerful and incredible illustration of the soils, the four seeds, the four soils, and the sowing of the seed. The sower goes out to sow and he throws seed, and some, some soil is so hard that nothing penetrates the soil, and the birds of the air come and they take the seed, and there's no life. And that's like someone preaching, proclaiming the gospel, and somebody being completely opposed to it. That's easy for us. We understand that response. We've seen that. There's a second type of soil, though, Jesus talks about, and that's the type of soil that receives the word, but is a rocky type of soil, and immediately when difficulty comes about, they fall away. So this, is, this, I think, is also somewhat easy. It's the type of person who seems to have responded rightly to the word, but you never see them again. They don't come back, or maybe they're there for a couple of weeks, but you never see them. And so you, want, so you, you ask the question, okay, they seem to have claimed some belief, but it didn't penetrate deep into their heart. And then, of course, he gives that fourth soil. I'll jump to the fourth soil because he says there's a fourth type of soil that is ready for the seed. And so it takes in the seed. It produces fruit. It produces life and fruit develops. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And so that helps us to understand that our Christian life is distinct. Some of us will have more fruit than others, but all genuine believers have fruit. There's a third type of soil, though, and this is the one that's difficult for us, but it's the one Jesus prepares us for. It's the type of soil that seems to receive the word, and in all external observance, they do receive the word. Uh, but Jesus says this type of soil is that which the enemy comes along at the same time and sows seeds of uh, deceit, and this soil comes up, or the, this this fruit comes up or this stalk comes up is the best way of putting it. Stalk comes up, but along with it comes weeds and they choke out the life. And Jesus, importantly, never says there's fruit on this sort of thing. So what are these weeds? He says the cares of this life and riches. So the concerns of life and riches, these are the sorts of things that choke out that life. Jesus prepares us for such an event elsewhere. Remember the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So I think that's actually really close to what he's saying here, what, what Peter's reflecting here. Because he says, if you call on him as father, 
So you're calling on him as father, but here's the question. Is he your father? Because you might be calling on him as father, but is he your father? Now, I'm not here to sow seeds of doubt in your heart because I actually don't think a, a believer should doubt their salvation unless there's absolutely no fruit in your life, unless you're living in sin in such a way. So this is why the Apostle Paul can say to the Corinthian congregation, uh, he says at the end of one of the letters, he says, <clears throat> test yourselves, see whether you're in the faith. So why does he tell the Corinthian congregation that? I mean, other than the Galatian congregation, no other congregation. I'm sorry, I'm going way out of the thing here, but you've got to grab coffee sometimes. So, um, <clears throat> But why does he say it to the Corinthian congregation? Because there's so many difficulties, so many trials, so, so, so much sin happening in that congregation that he says, listen, um, I'm not seeing the maturity. And so consider yourselves. And I think this is exactly what Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about. He says, at this point, I've given you milk and you ought to be on to the meat, but I still have to feed you the milk of the word. And so be warned, be careful that you're not the type of person that Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And then notice what he says, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not Cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many mighty works in your name? And of course, with the casting of demons, I think he's speaking in reference to people in that day uh, when such a spiritual gift was offered. But he's saying these people were active to some degree. He says, <clears throat> many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but I will say to them, what does he say? I never knew you. There's two important parts here. I never knew you. So, and I think this is critical. And John says it later. He says, look, there are some who went out from us, but they went out from us because they were not of us. They were not genuinely of us. Okay. And, and this is difficult uh, because, you know, I've, I've got friends and, and others who have wandered. All right. But, but this is what Jesus says. So, so he says, first, I never knew you. And then the second thing he says is, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. So, you know, could, would we say, oh boy, here was this guy. I mean, he said, Lord, Lord, the whole time he was doing this, you know, doing all these deeds for the Lord. And, and then just all of a sudden he was just rejected. I don't think so. I think the point is, look, there was no personal communion between us. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you claim my name, but there was no personal communion between us. And second of all, uh, your lifestyle was one that did not show fruit. So coming back to 1 Peter, I think that's what Peter's warning about here. It's, he's not straightforward and explicit about it, but I think uh, Peter is warning his readers, listen, uh, <clears throat> you've called on him as father, and that's, that's great. But know that God judges impartially. He will judge according to his righteous standard. And just because we call ourselves sons doesn't mean we are. And, and this is the same thing. Remember, Jesus says to the Jews, John the Baptist, as he's proclaiming, he says, uh, the axe is at the root of the tree. And don't say to me, 
we have Abraham as father. But instead, bear fruit showing repentance. And so I think, you know, a modern day statement of that would be, don't say to me, I called on Jesus as father. Show me fruit that's consistent with repentance. And uh, this is why, you know, when, when uh, I was involved in pastoral ministry in Wisconsin and we would, we would invite people to join the church, obviously you always wanted to invite true believers to join the church. One of the things that we would do is we would ask them for a testimony of faith. And generally what people wanted to tell me during that testimony of faith session is what happened when they were six years old or what happened 20, 30 years ago. And I'm fine hearing that. Uh, But what I also want to hear about is, okay, so what's going on in your life right now? Where is the evidence of faith today? What makes you think that today you have a relationship with Christ and that there's uh, a, a growth pattern in your life? I mean, this isn't to say that there, you know, I mean, sanctification is ups and downs. So we all mess up. We all screw up. We we ask forgiveness, but we ask forgiveness, right? Uh, we seek that. And so here Peter is saying, if you call on him as father, then live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. And, and why else should we do this? He says, because in fact, you were redeemed with an incredibly costly uh, purchase price. Notice he says in verse 18, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you're redeemed from the empty way of life. Silver or gold, these are the things that we value the most in our life. We might say silver, gold, or gas. Um, (laughs) I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that said, I'm so excited, I just closed on a loan for a full tank of gas. But the things that are valuable in this life, um, Peter says at the end of the day, they're worthless in comparison to the eternal things, especially uh, the blood of Christ. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, the word precious there actually also means costly. The worthy blood of Christ, who is a lamb without blemish or defect. We could jump into the whole analogous Uh, sacrificial system and what it means here. I hope that you know a little bit of that. We don't have time to dig into all that. But Jesus was the perfect lamb. And there's never going to be another one. So if you don't take this sacrifice, there is no sacrifice. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. Uh, For those who reject this sacrifice, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. But a fearful looking forward to a judgment and fiery indignation. So if you want salvation, you must have the Lamb, the lamb was given to us. It was priceless blood. He says in verse 20, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. I think this is important. He says, from the foundation of the world, Jesus was chosen. And this is consistent with what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, that at the beginning of creation, before time even began, The Father, the Son, and Spirit decided to make a pact about saving sinners. And according to Ephesians, and according to Ephesians chapter, or according to 1 Peter, 
uh, that included us. And here he's saying he was chosen before the foundation of the world or the creation of the world. But he was revealed in these last times for the sake of you, for your sake, and for our sake. In other words, I think this is uh, individualizing the sacrifice of Christ. Yes, he did it for the church brought, but he also did it for you. And we can never forget that, for your sake. And so through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead, glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. And I think part of what Peter's saying here is <clears throat> through Christ, <clears throat> his life, death, burial, resurrection, you've come to believe in God. And there's hope there because just as he was buried and just as he died, was buried and rose again, so likewise, we will as well. All right, so... That's the uh, command number four, live in fear. <clears throat> and you can read some more of those notes if you want, but I got to keep moving. So let's, let's move down to 22 to 25. And he gives, uh, you know, I, I battled in my mind whether I should include this as a fifth command that Peter gives in this uh, series or a distinctive command. And I would suggest that this is almost like Peter saying, here's some things that we ought to do. And then he steps back and says, Here's the main task that we're called to do. What's that main task? Well, read with me here in verses 22 to 25. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for, one, for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, their glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, that endures forever. And this word is the word, and this is the word that was preached to you. So I think this is the culminating command. This is the central command Peter gives because... It's the central command Jesus gave. We're going to see that in just a moment. And the command is this, love one another earnestly. You see that in uh, verse 22 there. <clears throat> love one another, in the NIV, it's love one another deeply. Uh, John 13, 34, here's what Jesus says. And this is when Jesus was still alive with his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <clears throat> so Jesus gives a new command. First John clarifies that though it's a new command, it's not really a new command. It's a new command based upon new promises of God's presence, but it's the same command God's been giving from the beginning. Indeed, if you were to summarize the Ten Commandments, which are themselves a summary of the law, 
it's really summarized in two words. Love God, love your neighbor. You could summarize all of it that way. And here, Peter's saying, here's what you've been saved for. This new command of Jesus to love one another. I want us to take a look at a passage in 1 John Uh, So keep your finger here. We're just a couple of pages to the right in your Bible, or if you've got an electronic edition, a couple of swipes perhaps. 1 John chapter 3. Notice this in verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we pass from life to death or death to life because, notice this, we know that we pass from death to life. Why? Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he gives this illustration. He says, so if a brother has a need, and you've got the material material gains to fulfill that need, and you don't, then you don't love him. Right, so he uses this illustration. But I want us to focus on what John is doing here. He's fleshing out what Jesus was saying. And then Peter, I think, is also fleshing out what Jesus was saying. Jesus says, the central command, here's what I want my disciples to focus on. Love one another. And if you do this, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. But the question is, What is love? How do we define it? Our culture has their own definitions, don't they? What would you say? Well, how would you define love? It's putting the rights need of another before your own. Okay, I think that's really helpful. So putting the need of another, and you say a righteous need, so it's not just any old need, but but a good need, a, a worthy need. Uh, in front of your own. Good. Anybody else? Yeah. Doing what's in the best interest of other people. Okay. And those are the sorts of things that just come naturally to us, right? <laughs> also an act of the will. It is. <laughs> what is natural to humanity? Exactly. I mean, if, if you just want to know, go into the uh, nursery here um, and just watch kids in their, in their natural habitat. I would love to say, don't come to my house, but you could just come to my house and watch my three girls play with each other. And uh, you would discover that selfishness, you know, my wife and I didn't need to teach them that. It came quite naturally. And of course, you know, <clears throat> Uh, they did get it from us <laughs> in the sense that, uh, you know, we both, my wife and I, see that character quality in ourselves. It is natural to be selfish, to do things. So even when I do something for somebody else, I do it because 
there's ultimately something laying behind it, right? And what is unnatural in our world is to live for the sake of other people. That's weird. Why would you do that? Especially, why would you do that in a whole, in a whole community? You worked hard for that money. Why would you go and give it to that person over there? Because, I mean, if they worked harder, they could have done, you know, or, you know, you always have some, some statement that way. But here's what Jesus says. He says, and this is what gets me, love one another, and then by what standard? Just as I have loved you. Okay, I'll do that. (laughs) Well, because notice what he says in 1 John chapter 3, because I think, you know, part of the question is, all right, what exactly does he mean by loving one another in 1 John 3, uh, verse 16? I think, you know, we, we all know 1 John, or we all know John 3, 16, but I think we should all know 1 John 3, 16 too. And this says this, this is how we know love. Um, let me see. Oh, this is how we know what love is. So are you looking for a definition of love? Here's the definition. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's the definition of love. Because can you think of a more selfless act? You know, I I mean, almost anything I do in my life, somehow, even if I'm sacrificing for the sake of someone else, somewhere along the way comes back to me, right? There's some benefit that I get. And when we think of Jesus leaving heaven's throne, taking on human flesh, submitting himself to the frailties of humanity. Uh, that's, that's astonishing. And why did he do it? Well, because he was going to get so much out of this. No, he's got to live with me forever. <laughs> no, he, he, he did it for the sake of love, for, for the sake of the needs of other people rather than himself. And now now Jesus says, look, here's the defining characteristic. They see my love displayed on the cross. And now when they interact with one another, they ought to reflect that. And if in fact we do that, will we not show to the world that we are different? I'm reminded of uh, some early church literature if Dr. Combs was in here, he'd know the, the passage I'm talking about quite well. But there was a early church, um, uh, it, this actually wasn't an early church document. It was a document written mocking Christians. And it was a play. And this play was about a man who infiltrated the Christian churches and convinced them he was a Christian and got them to give him all kinds of stuff. And he essentially said, these people are so easy to fool. You just go in, you tell them you're a believer and you tell them you got needs and they give to you, give to you, give to you. And of course he's mocking. And I read that with a huge smile on my face. And I say, this was distinctive of this group. They loved one another. And this man knew it. Now he took advantage of it. But I dare say others saw that and said, there's something different about this group. And man, if the church was characterized by love, 
And I don't mean love in the way that, that our culture talks about it, because I think this is the important thing. Uh, you know, our culture thinks of love as just mere acceptance. But in fact, if I really love people, then very often I just won't accept. You might actually call somebody the devil. <laughs> it's, it's possible. I could see that they're being motivated by the devil, right? I, I could point that out in their life. Um, so what is love? Love is based upon truth. And Jesus says we ought to love one another. Coming back to 1 Peter then. Notice, though, what he says, because this is critical to understanding why Peter thinks we can love one another. He says in verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that, or with the result that you have sincere love. So here's what he's saying. Your obedience to the truth, that is, your conversion, your new birth, the thing that we've been talking about up to this point, that obedience to the, to the truth caused a conversion in your life, and that conversion in your life ultimately leads to this one thing, that you now have love. So in Peter's mind, the one who becomes a believer becomes a lover. If you've purified your souls by obedience to the truth, then the result is you have a sincere love. And again, this is why Peter, this is why John or Jesus says, here's how people are going to know that you're my followers, because you do have love for one another. And this is why 1 John says, look, if somebody says they have love for their brother, but they don't, then the truth is not in them. Because the true believer is the one who has that. So this, this, this uh, goes with what we've been asking earlier. Remember, we were talking about uh, live in fear, live in, live in reverential fear of the Father, knowing that one day He will judge us all and that uh, the true spiritual life is one that leads to transformation of life such that there is fruit in accordance with that transformation of life. This is why I left you hanging last time. Every passage in the New Testament that talks about the judgment to come always talks about the judgment based upon works. And I don't think that's because we have to have a certain amount of works in order to be saved. Because at the end of the day, as Paul tells us quite clearly, uh, we're saved by the righteousness of Christ. But the righteousness of Christ, if you are redeemed, makes a difference in your life. So that, in fact, you have good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're created for good works. And so uh, we must have those. So what does good works look like? I think the chief good work, the chief fruit that abounds to the life of a believer is love. Self-sacrifice. So totally unnatural to humanity but natural to the redeemed soul because we see it in Jesus. And we say, if that's what Jesus did, that's what I want to be like. And we sacrifice for the sake of others. So Peter says, since you purified yourselves by obedience to the truth, you do have a sincere love for one another. Therefore, love one another deeply from the heart. And indeed, I, 
I note uh, a couple of things here. He says, for a sincere brotherly love. Uh, the NIV doesn't use the language here. Um, let me see. Love one another deeply. That's all it says. But it's actually a family term that's used here. Love, love one another. Love those in the family. And this goes along with the theme he's been expressing. You've been newly born into a new family. And so you've got brothers and sisters and love them. Uh, this is what Paul says in the pastoral epistles when he says that we ought to take care of the needs of everyone, the needs of the saints first, and then those outside, the brothers and sisters of our family. So what are the grounds or why should we do the love command? Well, we already addressed the purification of the soul. The second ground, though, comes in this next phrase, verse 23. Here's why you should do it. Because you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God or enduring word of God. So now he's using this analogy that Jesus uses. The word of God is like a seed that's planted in the heart. And Peter says, here's why you ought to love one another. It's because the immortal seed of God has been planted in your life. And it's producing an immortal life in you. And that immortal life is one that is characterized by love. Part of what we have to come to grips with is the fact that our brothers and sisters here are the people who will remain with us into eternity. There's a lot in this world that won't make it into eternity. And, uh, you know, a lot of things that we sacrifice for, we do a lot of things for. You get that beautiful house on, uh, you know, in Cape Cod. I don't know if that's interesting to anybody. All right, uh, let me see. Uh, that, that beautiful house right on the beach, okay? And you can visit anytime. It's, it's great. Uh, that thing's going to be burned up, you know, maybe sooner rather than later. But eventually, everything in this world is going to be burned up. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about, um, he talks about, he says, there's only one thing immortal that you'll ever meet in this life and it's other people. All the kingdoms of this world, everything's going to fade. But the people you see around you, they are immortal. They'll always live. And I th man, that, that transforms the way you think about things, right? Because we're so focused on the things, right? And we forget the people. But love one another, love this world. That's the, that's the characteristic because that's what's enduring. Because then he uses this illustration, verse 24, all people are like grass. I think about this in reference to guys like Putin. Yeah, he really thinks he's something. He's a piece of grass <laughs> that uh, he might think is, uh, you know, nice and green today, but he's going to wither and fade. All people are like grass. Their glory is like the flower of the field. Tried to convince my wife of this point before, but it's not been as successful that flowers are going to fade, so why do that? Um, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> their glory is like the flowers of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. So the word endures forever. The word's eternal. And the word has been planted in your life. You are eternal, this eternal life. 
And this is the word that was preached to you, Peter says to us. So, all of this is stated in service to the claim that we ought to love. So, how should we love? At the very last page here, I've given four things that this passage indicates we should love like. First, we must love earnestly or fervently. You actually see that in, uh, in the NIV phrase here, love one another deeply. Love one another deeply. Love one, we could probably put this this way. Love one another in a costly manner. If your examples of love never cost you anything, then I'm not sure they were examples of love. And here Peter says, here's what we ought to do for one another. Love one another deeply. Second, love one another, here's what the NIV says, from the heart. It's actually a, a really interesting phrase because in the Greek, it's the word we get the word hypocrite from but it's negated. So not hypocritically. Don't act like you're loving people. Really love people. And I think part of that, you know, I mean, acting like you're loving people is see, you know, doing something to be seen by other people rather than doing something for the sake of that person, right? Love one another earnestly, fervently, deeply. Do it from the heart. Third, we must love each other Purely. Um, in fact, this actually goes back to uh, so that you have sincere love for one another. Uh, that, that's actually the word for hypocrisy. From the heart is the word for purely. And uh, so here what he's saying is in a pure fashion. Uh, because of your high regard for uh, the other person. And then how else should we love? We should love familially. I made that word up. Um, I had to look it up. <laughs> and, uh, yes, yes, uh, that, that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, you, you've got to go back because Microsoft Word doesn't like it when I do these sorts of things. But uh, I had fervently, sincerely, purely, I had to do an L-Y. And so I took the word family and made it fam familially. All right. So in any case, um, Peter here is saying that we ought to love one another in the family of God. And so, I mean, I, my, my application question for, for you then in, in light of this passage is, this is central to what Jesus is teaching. Here, church, is what makes you different in the world. Your redemption plants within you love. So... How are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you sacrificing? And of course, this could be financial. I mean, a lot of times that's immediately what we move to. But you don't have to have finances in order to love. Uh, you can love by sacrificing your time. By sacrificing your ear. By doing something you really don't want to do. Somebody asks you, um, perhaps to teach in a certain ministry. Maybe you, uh, you know you can do that. You've seen that you can do that, but you just don't want to do that. 
But you know there's a need. And you say, you know what? I'm going to fill that need, even though I don't want to do it. Uh, because I want to be useful to the body. I want to love those, uh, love others. And I, I ask you, where in your life are you showing love? Because that's distinctive. And, uh, and that encourages us. I mean, First John is a book a lot about how do we know that we know the Lord. And one of his key metrics, how do you know you know the, lo- you know the Lord? Do you love other people? That's one of John's key questions. In what way do you see that you have sacrificed personally for other people? And if you can immediately answer, well, you know, I mean, I'm, you, I will, you wouldn't answer, right? Because if, if you really uh, are, are doing it for the right reason, you're not, you know, well, yeah, let me tell you all about that. Um, but you should be able to think, you know, here's a couple of ways in which our family or I have uh, sacrificed for the sake of, of others in love. All right, any comments or questions on that? Get to the next section here, go ahead. Yeah, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, I think, yeah. Or would food also be people that you want to award? I think so. Yeah, I don't think... Scripture does not define fruit in such a way that it eliminates any good. So I think fruit can be anything that is a result of our union with Christ and are seeking his will. And so that abounds in a million different ways. Very good. All right. So 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at that. We're in chapter 2. Moving along quite nicely. All right. So notice he begins... With the word therefore, we talked about this before. Anytime we see the word therefore, we're asking the question, why is that there? There's something that it's connecting to. And it's just talked about the word that was preached. So he says, in light of what I've just said about redemption and loving one another, therefore, here's what you should do. Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies... Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there's actually only one command in this passage. It doesn't read that way in the NIV because it looks like the first verse is a command. Therefore, rid yourselves. But that's actually... um, a statement that depends upon a command. It's a participle, if you want to know the Greek here, but it's essentially a command that depends upon another command. And that command, the central command of this passage is this, crave pure spiritual milk. Which, of course, leads us to the question, uh, what exactly is the pure spiritual milk? Peter loves analogies. Have you noticed that already? Uh, We've got a number here, new birth, your exiles and foreigners, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, uh, the word of God is a seed that brings new life. These are all analogies that he just used in chapter 1. Now he begins chapter 2 and he jumps to a new analogy. 
And he says, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, what exactly is this milk? I think the most likely interpretation, there are a few other interpretations, uh, but I think the most likely interpretation is that the milk is the word of God. The milk is the word of God. In fact, if you have the NASB translation, you would have actually read that. The King James also puts it this way. They translate it, the milk of the word. So long for or crave the milk of the word. So why do I suggest that here Peter is talking about the word of God? First, if you'll notice here, the word translated spiritual or rational, uh, uh, here it's uh, spiritual, is only used twice in biblical literature. It's here and in Romans chapter 12. And there um, it says, this is your reasonable worship or your logical worship or your spiritual worship. There's all kinds of different translations. That's because this word is really hard to define. It's related to the word logos or the word for word. And I am convinced that in this case, it actually simply means something that's based upon the word. So here crave the pure word-based milk is how I would actually translate this. Instead of spiritual, I would say word-based milk. And accordingly, uh, it would be the very word of God. Uh, the other reason that I think this is probably refers to the word of God is because on a couple of other occasions, the New Testament uses milk analogies for the word, for the word of God, the teaching of scripture. Uh, we talked about Hebrews uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, Paul uses it, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about the milk of the word rather than the meat of the word. And so these other analogies suggest to me that it's milk. And of course, if we think about that analogy, well, let me ask you, why do you think Peter uses this analogy? Long for the pure spiritual milk. Okay. All right. So remember, he's been developing this theme ever since 1-3. You've been born again. You've been born again into a new family. Uh, all these references to new birth. And now he comes and he says, okay, so if you've been new, newly born, then long for the milk. Yes. Yeah. And think of it this way, too. This analogy, the, the um, crave the spiritual milk. And notice he says, as like newborn babies. Um, I still have a little bit of PTSD from the three daughters I had in the late nights. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding about that. But if you've had a young child in your house uh, who longs for the milk, uh, you become rather aware of it quickly, don't you? The, the cries, uh, they are going to get your attention. They crave the milk because, as has been mentioned, they need this. 
And so Peter's using this really powerful analogy to suggest that we need the milk as well. So the question here might be, why should we long for the pure for the pure spiritual milk. And I give you a couple of reasons here that I think develop from the text. First of all, we should long for the spiritual milk because it is pure. Because it's pure. Notice again, he says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. I was just down in uh, Georgia and I've got a, a nephew who is born, I don't know, must be four months ago now. Uh, his name's Rockney, so kind of a unique, unique name. And I love the little guy. So we went down and, and we were seeing him when we were headed down to uh, Florida. Uh, and while we were there, I overheard the parents talking about the fact that uh, Gerber or some one of these big manufacturers of the milk uh, formula. formula, thank you, uh, the formula, they had just recalled all the formula. And... It was their formula that was getting recalled, and they were quite concerned about this because the last thing you want to do is give impure milk to your child, right? And uh, they, they were heavily concerned about this. And, uh, you know, I, I think everybody would say, you, you want the purest milk. And here we have the pure milk. Because here's the thing. I think there are times where we sometimes get frustrated because is it always easy to read the Word? You know, is every portion of this just so lucid and clear and so easy to read that it's just, man, it's like, you know, reading a novel that your favorite author wrote? Not normally. Well, sometimes, but not, not all the time. It's difficult, and you got to work through it. And so wouldn't it be easier if instead of reading the Word... You know, I just put John MacArthur on all the time. Now, I'm not criticizing John MacArthur. I actually think he's, you know, I, I enjoy much of his teaching. Um, wouldn't it be better if I just put Al Mohler, whoever your favorite preacher is, probably some British guy because their, their voice, it's really, it's really unfair, I'm telling you right now. I tried, you know, I was trying to develop a, a Australian accent to, so when I go preach places, but my wife told me not to, so. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, so Alistair Begg, you know, just put him on. I could listen to him all day. Uh, but here's the thing. They would tell you, don't just listen to me. <laughs> I'm not the pure spiritual milk. I might be trying to feed you the milk. But you need to go to the source, the pure spiritual milk. And this is why even if you're in a godly preaching church, you hear Pastor Ken all the time. I love Pastor Ken. He handles the word well. You still need the word. You need to ingest the word. The pure spiritual milk. And indeed, I think connected to this is the idea that we are what we eat. Have you heard that phrase before? You are what you eat. And I'm kind of thankful that we're not exactly what we eat. But we do realize that if you eat poorly, you feel poor, don't you? Not like poor as in money, but you just don't feel well. Um, a couple of Sundays ago, I was coming back from Florida. And we were doing a long trip. So uh, you know how food ends up on these long trips. 
it was horrible. And so I got home at like, I don't know, eight o'clock or something and, um, you know, had eaten fast food all the way. And I, I did not know if I was going to be able to teach the next morning in, in Sunday school because I just felt horrible. And, uh, and I just said, you know, I think that the reason I'm doing it is just because I ate so poorly on this trip. So um, I think I'll wait in the morning. I should be all right. And, and I was. But that just reminded me of this truth <laughs> that you are what you eat. So here, here's the other thing I think that we need to think about in reference to this. We need to be in the word, but we also need to be concerned about what we're ingesting. This is a pure spiritual milk. You need it. Uh, part of the reason why he uses this, this analogy is because the infant who does not have milk will die. I remember distinctly my wife and our first child and trying to figure out the breastfeeding thing and the anxiousness because the child's not eating. <laughs> you know, what, what are we doing? Because we knew this child needs this milk. So we need it. And here's the thing, are we feeding ourselves the milk or are we being fed other impure things? Are we, if, if we are what we eat, are we ingesting all the sorts of things from our culture, media, those sorts of things? Now, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying don't watch TV. Don't listen to the radio. We should be hermits and crabs out somewhere uh, without internet. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, you, can in, you, you, can, you can do that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of like your food. If you spend all day eating uh, fast food, guess how you're going to feel? Uh, your bodily functions will not work the way that they're designed to. You need good, pure milk or good, pure food. And in the same way, we have to have a good digest. I mean, we've got to get the word. And that's what Peter's saying here. Why should we long for the milk? Because it is pure milk. There's a second reason here. Because by it, he says, we grow up into salvation. By it, we grow up into salvation. Notice that in verse 2, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that, here's the reason you should do it, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Peter's point here is that the way in which you're going to grow is by the milk. And of course, this is exactly how the children grow, right? Uh, if, if your child is digesting quite a bit of milk, you know that they're going to gain weight. And that's a healthy thing for a baby. And in the same way, as we digest the milk of the word, we Get that pure milk in us so we grow in our salvation. Now, again, sometimes people get confused about this language because they say, well, grow in salvation. I thought salvation was a one-time event. But you realize that the scripture actually says that you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. It uses all three tenses. Well, what does it mean? Well, you were saved means that judicial point at which you transferred from darkness to light. That was when you became a true believer and the Holy Spirit came to indwell you and you'll never be condemned. But then he does something when he's in you. This is the process of salvation. You grow in your salvation. That's what Peter's talking about here. 
And then the, the final salvation is the point of redemption when Jesus comes back and cuts off our sin nature. And we no longer have to struggle with that. But we, here we are in that middling phase. We need to grow up into salvation. So how are you going to mature? Let me answer quite simply. By the word. And you know, this is, this is really hard for some of us because we want to see immediate growth, don't we? You know, I, I love things in life where if I do them, I immediately see the result. It's glorious. But the hardest things in life are the things that you've got to just do, 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 and it's like nothing's happening here. And then, you know, but, but if you could look back, you'd say, whoa, something happened, right, over time. But it was imperceptible. Because I, I hear some people sometimes, they'll say, well, I, I tried to read the Word. It just didn't work. Yeah, yeah, they, they gave up early or they just, they, it was imperceptible. You know, I mean, it would be like me saying to my children or about my children, well, you know, Grace is four years old, and we've been feeding her a lot, but she just doesn't seem to be growing. I think we're going to stop feeding her. <laughs> well, wait a second. Let, let's pause. Let's go back and look at her pictures when she was three. She'd let you know she needed <laughs> Well, that's true. <laughs> but if I look at pictures when she was three, and then, then I, you know, if I took a picture every week, guess what I'd see? I'd see growth. But it's a real hard thing. I mean, you know, I you don't want to start crying in front of you, but sometimes when I look at the pictures of my girls and, and, I, and I see them and it's like, what happened? <laughs> they used to be that size or this size. I was just looking at my youngest. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I'm looking at my youngest. and oh, Yeah, I know. My, my pocket's quite aware of that. Um, but, you know, I look at my youngest and she's now seven years old and it's like, wow. But, you know, that, that change happened imperceptibly, day by day, right? And I think that's how spiritual growth generally happens. Now, you're going to have maybe that camp experience you win, you made that major decision, and that's how life changed for you. And so, sometimes that happens. But honestly, those are the really rare circumstances. We are changed day by day. And here's the danger. That can go either way, friends. Are you growing into Christ, growing in your salvation because you're in the Word and you're developing that? Or are you walking away from that? Here's the language of Hebrews. You're drifting because you stopped. And here's the, the problem with our culture. Here's the problem with our human nature. If we stop rowing the boat, if we stop digesting the milk such that we would move forward, the current takes us the wrong way. You don't have to go seeking out the wrong stuff. It'll find you. You don't have to go seeking sin. It's already inside you. And so we have to combat this. We grow up into salvation by means of the word. And um, man, so, you know, so the question this leads us to is this. How do we cultivate this longing for the word. How do we cultivate this longing for the word? And unfortunately, man, I didn't get very far at all today. But how do we cultivate this longing for the word? Here's, here's where I'll leave us for today. 
Notice this last clause in verse 3. He says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, wait a second. I thought Peter was just saying that the word, or that the milk was the word. But now he says, we've tasted that the Lord is good. What's the connection between the Lord and the word? So we'll talk about that next time uh, and develop that a little bit more when we come back. Yeah? Um, when you're talking about the person that is going away, you're supposed to be going forward and growing. Mm -hmm. The person that is going away, where would he fall in the parable of the sower? Well, it depends. I mean, it could be that this person is truly a believer and that this, this time period is a temporary time period where they're not growing, they're not going forward, they're falling back in terms of their spiritual state. Hebrews talks about people like that. Um, but then it warns at the same time that they are, for the time period in which they're doing that, indiscernible. Indiscernible? I think that's the word I'm looking for. You can't tell the difference between them and the true apostate, the, the one who ends up being the third soil. And this is why, again, Paul says, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Because right now, you're, you're not going forward. And that concerns me because here's how we can be confident in our faith. I'm moving forward. If I'm not moving forward, I shouldn't have confidence in my faith. This is the message of 2 Peter. It says, grow in godliness, that we're always moving forward. And if we're not, then we ought to be concerned. All right. Thanks for the question. Good one.